the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Your host, the director of the star's own theater, Roger Pryor. Good evening, everyone. Your neighborhood good Gulf dealer and the Gulf Oil Companies welcome you to the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Tonight, two of Hollywood's most distinguished players appear before our Gulf microphones, Betty Davis and Brian Ahern, in Charlotte Bronte's immortal story of a great love, Jane Eyre. With music, of course, by Oscar Bradley's Gulf Orchestra with Frank Tours conducting. And now, we've only a brief moment before we meet Betty Davis and Brian Ahern. Is that right, bud? That's right, Roger. And while we're waiting, folks, I'd just like to suggest that if you ever take a drive in the afternoon during the week, just look around and see who's driving the other cars on the road. No doubt you'll notice that a great many of them are women, probably many of the women listening in right now. Now, you women folks aren't much interested in the mechanics of your automobile. You leave that to your husbands. Yet you do buy a great deal of the gasoline that goes into your car's tank. That's why you should know that the right kind of gasoline can make a mighty big difference in your car's performance in more respects than one. For instance, thousands of motorists have learned this winter that Gulf no-knocks gives them quick starting even in cold weather. They've found that it gives high mileage and smooth performance, too. What's more, as you can tell from the name, it helps end those annoying knocks and pings that appear in so many cars with the coming of warmer weather. So why not change right now to Gulf no-knocks gasoline? you'll find that it pays to make the good golf dealer your dealer. The curtain of the Gulf Screen Guild Theater rises on the first act of Jane Eyre, adapted by Charles Taswell from Charlotte Bronte's beautiful love story of the 19th century, starring Brian Ahern as Edward Rochester and Betty Davis as Jane Eyre, who tells our story. whose bleak gray walls are crusted with the green mold of righteous charity. I spent ten barren years there, eight as a lonely inmate and two as a teacher. And then suddenly an overwhelming desire possessed me to be free of Laufen. I sent off a letter to a London paper advertising myself as a governess in need of a situation. I scarcely dared to hope for a reply. What right had I to aspire to a position above what I now held. My appearance was as plain and drab and colorless as Loughton Orphanage. To my great surprise, a letter came to my hands a week later. It was on crested note paper and was written with heavy strokes of the pen. My dear Miss Eyre... If you are in a position to give satisfactory references, and if you are willing to adapt yourself to a secluded life without outside interests or contacts... You are requested to present yourself on Thursday next here at Thornfield Hall, respectfully. Edward Rochester. The night I arrived at Thornfield Hall was cheerless and foreboding, and the darkness was so thick and heavy that the carriage seemed to creak and groan against the blackness of the night. 
At length the carriage stopped before the blacker shadow of a house, whose dismal appearance was heightened rather than lessened by the feeble light of a single candle that gleamed from one curtained window. Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper, answered my ring, and I was taken to the library, a great empty cavern of shadows. Suddenly I was left alone with my prospective employer as the great door closed softly behind me. Well, come in, come in, Miss Eyre. Don't stand there in the doorway. Yes. I'm not an ogre. Sit down. No, no, not there. Over here where I can see you. Yes. Well, tell me about yourself. Where do you come from? Loughton School, sir. Ah. Charity case, eh? No parents. Orphan. Yes, sir. How old are you? Eighteen, sir. And you believe, of course, that you're a qualified governess. Well, I... English, a smattering of bad French, the rudiments of drawing, music. Uh, do you play? A little. Of course. That's the established answer, isn't it? Well, sit down at the piano. Play something. Yes, Truthful. And you, sir, are very abrupt. I fancy you'll get used to that in time. Does that mean I'm to stay on here? Well, certainly you're to stay on. Good heavens, with all the important things I have on my mind, do I have to write you a special invitation? A simple and concise answer, such as yes or no, would be sufficient. What's that? Good night, sir. Huh? No, oh, wait. Wait, Miss Eyre. Uh, come back here, please. Perhaps I owe you another apology... For my bad manners. That isn't necessary. You're annoyed. Yes, and stubborn. Stubbornness is a great fault, Miss Eyre. Not nearly as great as your temper, sir. Oh, indeed? Well, not only truthful, but exceedingly, uh, I might even say painfully, frank, Miss Eyre. I'm sorry, I... Oh, but I, I like it. <laughs> In fact, I like it very much. You know, I have a strange feeling that you're coming to Thornfield Hall will bring about a great change for the better. Why, already... The... What is that? Here in the country, we are apt to hear strange sounds in the night, Miss Anne. But it sounded almost... Oh, well, nothing, nothing to worry about. Mr. Rochester, oh, I thought you were alone. Come in, Mrs. Fairfax. Did you hear that noise? It quite alarmed Miss Hare. Yes. I heard it. It was Grace Poole. Yes, yeah, she has a room in the West Wing, Miss Eyre. An excellent seamstress, but a strange woman. Please, may I speak with you, Mr. Rochester? Certainly, if Miss Eyre will excuse us. Of course. Tomorrow will be a busy day. What will become acquainted with your ward and starting lessons? With your permission, I'll retire. Good night, Mr. Rochester. Good night. Oh, Miss Eyre. Yes, Mrs. Becker. It will be wise for you to bolt your door as long as you remain. Thornfield Hall. Good night, Miss Eyre. I lay awake long that night, thinking over the strange household in which I found myself. Unable to sleep, I rose from my bed and stood at the window. Gray clouds scudded across the moon, 
trailing their specter garments behind them. Then, in some other part of the great house, a clock told the hour of three. Scarcely had its reverberations died away, when another sound came to my listening ears. Footsteps, slow, stealthy, coming down the hall. I waited countless unmeasured seconds as the footsteps approached my door. Then something rushed across the panels and touched the latch. Who's there? Who's there? There was a sound of retreating footsteps. With trembling hands, I lit my candle. What horror was this? What terror was abroad in the darkness of Thornfield Hall? Suddenly I heard... Help! A cry of merciless laughter. Could such a deformity of sound come from any human throat? Throwing a dressing robe round me, I silently unbolted and opened my door. The hall was palely lit by a single candle, and I started toward the wing where I knew Mrs. Fairfax slept. And then, behind me, I heard a door creak open. I turned. There was no one in sight. But Mr. Rochester's door stood open, and out of it rushed great billows of smoke. Wake up, Mr. Rochester. Uh, uh, Your room's ablaze. The curtain's a bed. Uh, uh, Wake up, Mr. Rochester. Wake up. You'll be suffocated. Uh, here, here, the water pitcher. Uh, uh, what, what kind of infernal... Oh, well, get out of bed. Will quickly, you quickly. Out of bed? What, with you standing there? I'll do nothing of the kind. There's no time for convention. Your bed's on fire. Oh, the smoke Hurry, uh, hurry, outside my door in the last one. You may have been dreaming, Miss Eyre. Dream. Very well, if you wish to say so. Good night, sir. Wait, wait, Miss Eyre. You uh, have saved my life tonight. I have a pleasure in owing you so great a debt. I cannot say more. There is no debt. Somehow I knew at the first moment that I saw you that you would do me good in some way, at some time. Please forgive me for seeming evasive. I have good reason. Believe me. You must believe me. If it means so much to I'll try. Thank you, my... Thank you, Miss Eyre. Good night, sir. Good night, good genie. Good night, Jane Eyre. Somehow I knew, the first moment that I saw you, that you would do me good in some way, at some time. 
Oliver Cromwell was followed by Richard Cromwell. Good night, Gugini. Good night, Jane Eyre. The House of Stuart was restored in 1680, wasn't it, Miss Eyre? Wasn't it? Well, what did you say, dear? The House of Stuart was restored in 1680 when Charles II ascended the throne. That's right, dear. into weeks, the weeks to months, and I slipped into the quiet routine of Cornfield Hall. I gave Adele her lessons in the library each morning, and after a while, Mr. Rochester took to joining us. At first, he was a gloomy and morose companion. Before the summer was over, he seemed to shake off the gloom that pervaded the old hall. He came one with a very light-hearted treatment. <laughs> Well, you've done wonders for the child in the four months you've been here, Jane. Thank you. And wonders for me. I'm a changed man. Why, do you know, only this morning I stared at myself in the mirror and I said, Who is this handsome devil? And who was it, sir? Hmm? Oh, look here, don't you think I'm handsome? No. No? No. Oh. Well, after all, you needn't be quite so emphatic about it. Do you want to be flattered and told you're beautiful? Uh, well, I am. Uh, with uh, reservations. <laughs> Look here, how would you like it if I said that you were very plain, very unattractive, and totally devoid of any charm? Well, I... I should believe every word of it, sir. If you said it. Well, that's exceeding... Oh, oh, wait a minute. Jane? Jane, look at me. Please, I... Jane, Jane, dearest. Do any words of mine mean so much to you that they bring tears to your eyes? Yes, yes, there are tears. Forgive me, I'm very foolish. And I'm so very stupid. Oh, Jane, I wouldn't hurt you for the world. Why, you're the only thing I have to hold on to. The one shining light in all this darkness that I have to follow. Please, I must... Why shouldn't I put my arms around you? You've brought me to sanity again. And the belief in the eternal goodness of life. Oh, Jane, to hold you so realize what happiness we could find together. Darling. Darling. <laughs> Last again. Oh, God in heaven. Sir Rochester, are you ill? Tell me what's wrong. Jane. Jane, uh, you must leave Thornfield. Leave? Yes. Immediately. But why? Is it customary for an employer to have to give reasons when he has no further need for a gust governess's services? What is this horrible secret that binds you and Thornfield Hall together, making you afraid of every earthly emotion save that of fear? Please, Miss Eyre. Why don't you tell I me? I have nothing more to say, Miss Eyre. You must go. Very well. As you wish it. I'll be packed and ready to go tomorrow evening. gentlemen, we'll continue with Act Two of Jane Eyre in just a moment. During our intermission, we'd like to tell you of a record-breaking champion. All right, bud? You know, folks, just as here in the Gulf Theater, Gulf proudly presents week after week the box office champions of America, so too Gulf is responsible for bringing American motorists another champion. And it's a real champion of land, sea, and air 
Gulf Pride Motor Oil. Gulf Pride Motor Oil, for instance, was the oil used by George Barringer when he broke 33 speed records on the famous Bonneville salt beds of Utah. And believe me, folks, there are mighty good reasons why champions like Barringer, as well as thousands of everyday motorists, depend on Gulf Pride for top-notch performance. You see, Gulf Pride Motor Oil is made differently, refined not only by ordinary methods, but also by the exclusive Alclor process. This extra refining step removes up to 20% more of the easy oxidizers found in other premium oils, makes Gulf Pride resist the damaging effect of air to an extraordinary extent. That's why Gulf Pride forms less carbon, less sludge and varnish, stays up to the mark longer, vaporizes more slowly, and lubricates better. Yes, folks, you're doing a mighty wise thing when you use Gulf Pride motor oil in your car. Now the curtain of the Gulf Screen Guild Theater is ready to rise on the second act of Jane Eyre, starring Betty Davis as Jane and Brian Ahern as Edward Rochester. The day following my strange and abrupt dismissal, I saw nothing of Mr. Rochester. Well, he remained locked in his study, packed my few belongings, said my goodbyes to Mrs. Fairfax and Adele. Yes, and even to Grace Poole, the seamstress. I met as I came down from my room. While waiting for the post-chaise, which would take me away from Thornfield forever, I went for a last walk in the garden. Suddenly, at the turn of the path, I saw Mr. Rochester. Jane. Jane. Oh, were you going without one word? Without even saying goodbye? You gave me to understand that everything had been said last evening. Please don't think badly of me, Jane. If you only knew, if it were possible for me to tell you, you would realize that this is for the best. For the best. What a polite, comfortable phrase. It applies equally well to any occasion. Jane, please don't speak like that. Why shouldn't I? I hate to hear you so bitter. Bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm laughing. Laughing at myself. The poor, stupid Duke who thought she was a favorite of Mr. Rochester. The silly little fool who thought she was gifted with the power of teaching Jane, my darling. What an idiot. What a fool believe just because it was pleasant to hold her in his arms. She was of importance to him. Jane, you can't go. You can't go. You're more than anything in the world to me. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think I have no feelings? Jane, darling. I must go. The post-chaise will be along in a moment. Jane, Jane, wait. I won't. I can't let you go. Your jesting is ill-timed. Yes, Jane, I love you. You're the only one I've ever loved. Ever will love. Jane, will you marry me? Marry you. The day after tomorrow. At the little church in Milcote. Oh, no. A man has the right to seize happiness when it's within his reach. And let the future bring what it may. Ah, but you don't mean it. You can't. Jane, darling, I need you. I want you above everything in heaven or on earth. I love you. And you love me. Say it. Say I love you. I love you. Again. I love you. Come inside, quickly. Heaven is jealous of me and is weeping torrents. Hurry, hurry, darling. Oh, 
following day with an orgy of profligate spending, gowns, slippers, bonnets, jewels, a wedding dress that was a miracle of lace. It was late when we returned to Swanfield Hall, and for some time after I went to bed, I could not sleep. A sense of anxious excitement and the sound of the rising gale outside distressed me. At length, my weariness overcame my senses, and I drifted off, fell asleep to dream. I dreamt I woke to see a candle burning on my dressing table, and the closet in which my wedding dress and veil were hung, its door was slowly opening. Who's there? Who's there? It was in my room. Then from the closet came a figure, and on its dark, tangled hair, it wore my wedding veil. But my dream held me powerless. The creature bent to look at herself in the mirror. And then, with a sudden gesture, it tore the veil from its head, rent it in two parts, and threw it to the floor. Taking the candle, it approached my bed. First time I saw its face. Fearful and ghastly were its bloodshot eyes. Bestial and inhuman were the purple gross features. Loathsome and unclean, the dark and swollen lips. Close to my bedside, it stopped, and thrusting the candle close to my face, it glared down at me, its red eyes flaming into mine. And then, as that laugh came to my ears, issuing from those savage lips, I lost consciousness and became insensible from terror. <laughs> my wedding day. Still oppressed with my dream, I looked around my room to gather courage and comfort from each familiar object. And there, on the carpet, torn and trampled, was my wedding veil. He will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. That if either of ye know any impediment why ye may not lawfully be joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. Edward Fairfax Rochester, wilt thou have this woman? Wait. This marriage cannot go on. Proceed with the ceremony. Stop. I said this marriage cannot go on. What is the meaning of this? I can prove that Edward Rochester has a wife now living. Who are you? I am Grace Poole, her sister. Even now, Mrs. Edward Rochester is living at Thornfield Hall. Mr. Rochester, what does this woman mean? Close your book. Take off your surplice. We have no need of them today. What this woman says is quite true. I have a wife. And she still lives. For the past 15 years, she has been locked away in the west wing of Thornfield Hall, attended by her sister, Grace Poole. For my wife is mad, gentlemen. And she came of a mad family. Idiots and maniacs through three generations. Go and look at her, gentlemen. But keep your distance if you value your lives. And then judge me, priest of the gospel and men of the law... Tell me if I'm to blame for seeking happiness with Jane Eyre, whom I wanted to make my true wife. 
How could you? How could you? For a good and not strange reason. I love you. Why didn't you tell me? Because I was afraid I would lose you forever. How could I confess that the specter of Thornfield Hall was the mad wife of its master? And that the laughter that sounded in the night was her insane glee at escaping from her jailer? Oh, Jane, Jane, I tried. God knows how hard I tried to send you away. Yes, you did try. I wish I had gone that night. Because our only salvation is that we never see each other again. Jane, you don't mean that. You can't mean it. It must be. Jane. My going has been delayed too long. Much, much too long. Jane. Jane, darling, come back. Matters not where I went, nor what happened. By some good fortune, I found a place in the north of England. School conducted by a kindly vicar and his sister. That was a year ago. Twelve months of quiet peace and understanding. Of late, my mind has been troubled. But now it is troubled no more. Let the world cry shame. I'm going back to Thornfield Hall. Back to Edward Rochester. <laughs> great trouble, my dear. Yes, the house, the whole West Wing. What happened? It burned months ago. The mad woman set fire to it in the night. And before anyone woke, the whole wing was ablaze. Was Mr. Rochester at home? Yes. It was he who woke the servants and then went back to get his wife. But it was too late. She had climbed up onto the roof, screaming and laughing. Then the flames reached her. Oh, how ghastly. See here comes Mr. Rochester down the path now. But he moves so slowly. Would he hurt? He's stone blind. The fire. Oh, no. How horrible. Uh, Mrs. Fairfax, will you leave us alone? Yes. Yes, my dear. Mrs. Fairfax, are you there? Yes, sir. Uh, your arm, please. Certainly, sir. Ah, thank you. Wait. This is Mrs. Fairfax, isn't it? No, sir. What? Who is this? Speak again. Have you so soon forgotten me? Am I dreaming? Is this a delusion? No dream, no delusion. Jane. Jane Eyre. I've come back to oh, you. Oh, I can't be so blessed after such misery. I've had this same dream so many nights when I prayed to you and kissed your adored face and trusted you never to leave me. And I never will. But I'm blind. I'll be your eyes. I'm hideous. Not to me, not to me, ever. I won't let you make such a sacrifice. Sacrifice? What do I sacrifice? Famine for food, expectation for contempt, to be privileged to put my arms around you, to kiss you. Is that to make a sacrifice? If so, then I delight in sacrifice. Jane. Oh, my darling. Don't you see? This is your dream. This is your prayer. This is my heaven. Oh. 
here's the billboard for next week in the Gulf Stream Guild Theater. Gary Cooper, Joan Bennett, Francis Langford, and Fibber McGee and Molly. The whole family will want to hear Gary Cooper, Fibber McGee and Molly, Francis Langford, and Joan Bennett on the Star's Own program at the same time next Sunday. So until then, this is Roger Pryor saying good night for your neighborhood good Gulf dealer. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you.